Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. We're back. David Campbell, your host, sports manager at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. And joining me as he does every week, Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. How you doing, Terry? I am well. I'm just glad I'm not coaching in the NBA. <laughs> All right, we got a lot to talk about on today's podcast. I guess we'll start with the NBA and then we'll get into the Guardians a little bit. Uh, the Browns pulled off a surprising trade last week. We'll mm-hmm. talk about that. And we've got uh, kind of an interesting Hey Terry question that kind of came out of the blue that I was kind of surprised to see. So we'll get into that too. But yeah, Terry, not a good uh, week to be an NBA coach. Uh, Doc Rivers was let go by the 76ers today. He joins, boy, what, Nick Nurse and and Mike Budenholzer and Monty Williams. And uh, I'm getting emails, and I'm sure you are too, basically along the lines of these these coaches were – working for much more accomplished teams than the Cavs and the Cavs kept their guy and these teams didn't. And are the Cavs getting left behind? Are you seeing that too? And I guess, what do you think about all this? Well, the interesting thing is three of those names you mentioned have been coach of the year in the last five years. Nurse was coach of the year. Uh, Monty Williams was, and uh, Buden, uh, Bud was from Milwaukee. And so Mike Brown better be worried because he was the coach of the year this year. It seems like that. And I think Steve Kerr was the other one. Uh, Kerr's probably the one of the few people in the NBA that's really safe along with Greg Popovich. But the rest of these guys uh, can go. I mean, to me, I just find it preposterous a couple of these guys are fired, especially Monty Williams is really a good coach. You know, they got a brand new owner there and they traded half their draft picks into eternity for uh, Kevin Durant and some other things. And so now he's going to go look for a coach. And then here's the interesting thing is several of these teams that are looking for coaches will turn around, just hire these guys that got fired. Oh, absolutely. Musical chairs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's all sports. Okay. Well, you know, my guy wasn't that good, but maybe Monty Williams can do what he did a couple of years ago here. Um, I just, I'm glad the Cavs aren't falling into that. And, you know, we'll see what JB is. We'll see what we're talking about at this time next year. But he's been growing this team here. And I know we're in a time that people don't like patience or any of that stuff. But uh, 
you know, you bring in a, another coach at this point, uh, you know, maybe, like I said, I like Monty Williams. Perhaps if he came in here, would he be an upgrade on JB? Maybe, probably. But he would also have to get to know the players, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know. I just want to see what they do with a second year of playoff things, you know, with them. Yeah. And Terry, you know, like I'm thinking back to like high school biology class when they used to have like the life cycle of a fruit fly and stuff. There's yeah. like a, there's like a life cycle to coaches, right? And and mm -hmm. they get the job, there's either success and then failure and then things have to change. And then they either stay for a long time or they're let go or they start out poorly and they grow things and things get better. And then they reach a plateau. And then if they can't get over the plateau, they get let go or they get to stay for a long time. I mean, you look at the Browns, like Kevin Stefanski, right? Coach of the year, playoff appearance, beating the Steelers. And now things have kind of taken a little bit of a downward turn. They're like, all right, bring in new coaches. We're going to revamp this thing and get it going. Mm -hmm. Like JB at this point is like in the very first stage, like he's in the growth stage. And there was a little bit of a downturn, but you've talked about this, Terry. You win 51 games in the NBA. That's very hard to do. And like, I don't think JB is far enough along in his career and especially his Cavs career to where fans should be calling for him to be gone just because of what's going on around the league, right? Well, coaches will tell you coaching the NBA is a little like they keep raising the hoop on you. Uh, but that I mean, okay, so you right now the goal is to say take over a bad team like Cleveland. You want to be respectable. So now that hoop's like at eight or nine feet. Okay, then it's like you want to have a winning record. Okay, now it's up to 10 feet. And then you want to make the playoffs. Now it's up to about 11 and a half feet. And then you better not just win a round, but a couple of rounds. And the next thing you know, you're trying to shoot the ball over the terminal tower. And that's how it, because when you when you get to that point where it's championship or bust, that's about what it is. And they'll say, well, this guy's, he grew stale or what, but the last time I did some research on it, the average NBA coach was with his team for a little less than three years. So it isn't as if they just let these guys coach there for 10 years and then, you know, oh yeah, his voice could wear out. Cause I saw that, for example, I remember when Lenny Wilkins was here, uh, I believe he was here for six years and Lenny resigned really pretty much before they were going to let him go. And he told me, he goes, you reach a point, you know, that, especially if you have the same core group of players, maybe a different voice is needed. So, cause at that point he was with that same group of Larry Nance and Brad Doherty and Mark Price and Craig Elo, uh, a couple of others. So John Hot Rod Williams. So that was a, a thing there. Like Mike Fratello, the same thing kind of happened with him in Atlanta. He started knocking out 51 seasons with Dominic Wilkins, but he couldn't get through the second round. And so, okay, let's try. And then, then the funny thing was this. Fratello comes here. Lenny Wilkins went to Atlanta. <laughs> How about that? So that's the kind of stuff you do. And I'm not, I don't think, you know, Lenny, and Lenny Wilkins had some real success there. I don't think he tra He really was coaching in any way differently down in Atlanta. And I doubt that Fratello was, had changed a whole lot coming to Cleveland. It's just the nature of it. But I, I just really wish people would just relax on this thing and see what JB does. Um, I just also want to stress that, you know, what do you think, Dave? What percentage of NBA coaching is X's and O's in game stuff? Uh, well, are you including 
I mean, there's there's the X's and O's stuff, but Terry, there's also like managing the personalities on the roster, right? That's a whole that? other deal. No, simply yeah. I'm asking simply so the strategy. Simply X's, X's and, O's, and O's. I would say like fifteen percent. Yeah, it's not, right? exactly. I mean, you can get a lot of guys who maybe are better, perhaps, on X's and O's than JV Bickerstaff, but if you don't have um, control your team, respect to the teammates and that is interesting i was i was at a doctor's office today and his son works in the visiting clubhouse with the lakers and he was telling me how when jb and those guys came in there how they you know they interacted with each other how they were you know basically they acted like professionals kind of like what you've seen we don't have the calves are not running around with guns that we know of or doing these crazy things that you see on some of these other teams and Granted, Kobe Altman has been very careful about what type of people he's bringing in here, but still, you need to, the coach needs to have control, and JB does that. Even when it was falling apart with the Knicks, you didn't see a whole lot of fingers pointed in different directions or that kind of stuff. So I look at a lot of those things. It's just like you look at part of what makes – I mean, I don't know if Terry Francona is the greatest in-game manager going – but he's the greatest manager because of the, the ability to handle the big picture stuff, handle people, all that kind of thing. And I think JB has a lot of that. Now his, you know, his act may may wear off in a couple more years, and that's how it goes, especially if he's with the same players. But for now, uh, you've got to give him. I mean, he basically if it's, a, it's kind of like a three act play in my mind, and he just got through the first act. Yeah, for sure. And like you were talking about the hoop moving up and down, like the hoop is going from eight and a half feet to nine and a half feet next season. Terry, right? Like that's. Oh, I think it's closer to 11. I really do. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Because I'm saying it's hard to make those shots. And because people are going to want at least one round in the playoffs. And then here's the other thing that's going to be hard to coach is the fun part is building the team. You get these young guys in there. You, you, you're starting with a really bad record and kind of some bad stuff going on. You quote unquote get the culture in place. Then you start to get to around a 500 record. Then you get a winning record and you get into the playoffs. That's all fun because it gives, by the way, a tremendous weight to the regular season when you're doing all that. Now, the whole thing with the Cavs and with many of these things is, well, you know, it really doesn't matter to get the playoffs. And I saw that whole growth stage when I covered the Cavs with, when Lenny Wilkins was here, when he came in and uh, coming in after the Ted Stepien era. And um, they had had one kind of playoff team a couple of years before that, but it was, it was a, it was a total rebuild. And then it was like, not only did they make the playoffs, that's like, can you get past Michael Jordan? And that was really frustrating. The nice thing I like about the NFL, and I'm not a huge football fan compared to the others, is there's tremendous value in the regular season. There really is. And, yeah, you wait kind of for the playoffs some, but, boy, that regular season means a lot. You know, even when Bernie and that, you weren't just sitting there in week six of the NFL season going, I wonder if the Browns could get by Denver. You know, you really weren't doing that. But, you know, in week, you know, game 35 of the NBA season, it's like, well, I wonder if these guys could actually win a playoff series. So that'll be what, and and the players hear that stuff too. So that'll be a challenge for JB. 
Well, Terry, I don't. I I wanted to get your real your opinion real quick on something. I'm not comparing this guy to Michael Jordan, but um, this Victor Wembanyama, who's going to be the main attraction in tonight's draft lottery. Um, have you seen him play? And I guess Jimmy Jimmy Watkins, our colleague, he did a good post that if you have time to check it out on Cleveland.com, he basically broke down five teams in the East that the Cavs should cheer against getting the number yeah. one pick tonight. But um, to, to me, Terry, you remember Ralph Sampson back in the day, right? Mm-hmm. Like just the way he this this guy's built like Ralph Sampson, but he he's got handle and he can shoot it from three. And he's really something. I haven't really seen anybody like him ever. Have I you, haven't have either. I'll be curious to see how it how it works on him physically, just because he's so tall and thin. See, Samson played four years of Virginia. By the way, when they recruited Samson to Virginia, I don't know if this is one of those like uh, folk tales or the real thing, but they brought him in by helicopter. I had another coach tell me he was recruiting against him. And I guess they had this big banner on top of the Virginia Coliseum wherever they were playing with Jim back then said Ralph's house. Huh. So, and also I believe Samson was from Virginia, so it was kind of keep him home and, and that. But the thing about Samson is he never was sure. And I'm talking about a hall of fame player here on top of it. What kind of player he wanted to be. I, I did see him like, do I want to be a defensive guy? You know, he, he could handle it. He could shoot it. Uh, now we weren't in the three point era like Victor will be. And maybe Samson, had he played there, he would have been one of those. The, forget, you know, stretch four. He would have stretched six at seven foot four <laughs> shooting those things. Yep. Um, but, you know, he never won really big. I mean, he won a lot of games, but it, he was just a – he was an odd player. Now, I don't know if that's going to be with Victor, but I'm just giving you that historic perspective. The other thing that I do think is going to be a challenge for Victor is coming in just at his age – and, you know, those tall guys with their bodies, keeping him healthy over the length of an NBA season, um, that will be interesting to watch. You, but skill-wise, it's phenomenal. Yeah, and that's tonight, NBA Draft Lottery. And, boy, talk about a franchise-changing moment for a lot of teams tonight. So, um, Terry, you had a really good idea about dropping some of our Hey Terry questions in during the course mm-hmm. of when we're talking about teams. So I wanted to throw this one. It's kind of a bigger picture look at the Cavs. It's from Brian Kirkendall. And he says, Hey, Terry, everyone is disappointed in the Cavs finish. And understandably, do you think Dan Gilbert gets enough credit for his ownership time? He's had a blank checkbook for a long time and has built what seems to be a strong front office. Even when LeBron was here, they had a, they had good leadership. You just don't hear a lot of negative things about the Cavs and how they operate over the past 15 years. Cavs games are great to go to. The experience at the arena is fantastic. This was all done under his watch and with a lot of his money. What do you think of that, Terry, in terms of the credit that Dan Gilbert gets or doesn't get? It's it's um, fascinating to watch his growth as an owner. Because I remember when he bought the Cavs, I forgot what season it was. It was LeBron's second season in the league. And Jim Paxson was a GM. He bought the Cavs, and the next day he wanted to fire Paul Silas, the coach. I mean, the next day. Paxson talked him out of it for about six weeks, but towards the end of that season, he did fire Silas and promoted Brendan Malone because at that point, now this is how where he was. Remember, Dan's from Detroit. He loved the Pistons. Brendan Malone was one of the assistants on the bad boys. So he thought this would be great. We'll get Malone in there, and then he takes he takes over. Well, then in the offseason, Mike 
he did hire Danny Ferry and Mike and Mike Brown, and he gave him five years, uh, which was pretty good. So um, that was a that time though, kind of Danny Ferry. He didn't rehire Danny Ferry, and then Mike Brown won 61 games by the way that year. That was LeBron's last year. LeBron left. Mike got fired, um, and then you went through a lot of uh, you know the the waiting for. Uh, LeBron to come back or whatever, the, the tough LeBron rebuild. I remember he fired Chris Grant in the middle of the season, put in David Griffin. That was an interesting move that nobody saw coming. Um, and then that was also when they bought, brought back Mike Brown. Remember that? Oh, yeah. So they had Byron Scott for a couple of years, and then they bring back Mike Brown. It was it was really odd. Uh, and then they went through you know, the coaches with LeBron's kind of half running the franchise with them. But here's where I think Dan's actually been at his best. And I spent a lot of money and all those things. And he, and he had to sell LeBron on coming back. He did. Um, but this time around with Kobe Altman, and Kobe was going through the coaches there. Remember, Kobe Altman inherited Ty, Ty Lu, And then after LeBron left, he had Lou the next year who, who told him he wanted to coach a young team. Lou did not even though he said so. After six games, they fired him. By the way, their first six games, not only did they lose all six, they only led in the second half once. I mean, it was really bad. And there, that's when all the stories were out about um, uh, they were Colin Sexton and the veterans and all kinds of junk like that. So then Larry Drew took the, the team for the rest of the year. Drew, at that point, didn't like the whole situation. He says, I'm out of here. So he leaves. And then um, John Beeline comes in, and they go through that. So now in the rebuild, in the first year and a half of the rebuild, they go from Ty Lue to Larry Drew to John Beeline, and they're losing, and I'm going, oh, this is bad. And I'm sure Dan had to be going through some tough times. Now, also at this point in Dan's life is Dan, Dan had a major stroke. And so that probably – in some ways, helped everybody put a few things in perspective. Dan was going to be more patient because he was going through his physical stuff, getting back. And Kobe was given a chance to get one more coach in that year. And to uh, what really helped Kobe, and this is something rarely heard, John Beeline walked in the middle of his first year, resigned, and I think he had like a three- or four-year contract. I think he just took the salary for the rest of that year, and that was it. Hmm. He really hated the NBA. And interestingly, if you notice, he hasn't coached since. He's helped out a few places. Uh, I think he's like an advisor to the Pistons now. Then JB came in, and I remember, um, I think he went 6-5 and five or something like that. Then COVID shut down the Cavs. The next year, they had a rough year. I think they were, they were like 22-50. and 50. And I wondered if everybody's going to get fired again. I think the old Dan Gilbert would have done it. But he gave Kobe one more year with JB, and that was the, you know, they turn around and they draft Mobley. They trade for, that was Jared Allen they picked up. They drafted Mobley. He made the market and trade. That all happened uh, right there. And then suddenly now they're on the way back to the playoffs. See, this is where actually patience showed and Dan's growth as an owner showed. Uh, so I agree. The game presentation is terrific. They will spend, I mean, he doesn't want to go on, into the luxury tax, you know, to win 35 games that he doesn't want that. But, you know, if Kobe comes up with him something now and we want to do this, uh, Dan will agree, you know, Dan will greenlight it. 
Well, and he always has. I mean, if like you said, if they if they think the payoff is there, he goes over the tax. And boy, we were talking about Ted Stepien last couple yeah. of weeks, Terry, compared to Cleveland owners of the past to have the stability and the deep pockets and just the long-term security that that Dan Gilbert has provided in addition to everything else he's done. I, I think and one of the point. ways to get out of a mess is to have patience with the general manager. And I'm speaking now, you mentioned when Stepien left, uh, then um, they had Gordon Gunn bought the team. He inherited Harry Weltman, who wasn't his guy. And then he let go of Weltman and he brought in Wayne Embry. And he was patient with Embry and Wilkins as they rebuilt that. You know, fans said, well, they didn't win the title. I mean, those are wonderful years here. And because um, they won 50 games, I think, three times and made the playoffs and the Jordan stuff and made basketball relevant. Uh, and this same thing paid off. Dan would decided Kobe was his guy, and he let Kobe go through a few coaches, and he was going to stick with them, and it's paid off. And if you look at the roster, Kobe's fingerprints are all over good moves on this roster. And then you turn around, you look at uh, what Marketing did when he went to Utah. Marketing stock was like you know one of these. Uh, tech companies that suddenly fell way out of favor when he brought him in here and marketing began to reinvent himself here. And of course he goes to Utah where they um, feature him in the offense and he averaged like 24 points a game. So, and marketing was used to bring in Donovan Mitchell. So that was, uh, uh, it's fascinating to see that. So I'm, I'm on board with, uh, who was it that, uh, that wrote that wonderful letter? Yeah. Brian Kirkendall. Thanks for Brian. that. Brian. Yep. Yeah. Double, double thumbs up for you. All right. Yeah. And before okay. I forget to mention it, anybody who's listening, you want to send us a question, comment, just email us at sports at cleveland.com and put Terry's talking or Hey Terry in the subject line. And we'll try and get it on the next podcast. So, Hey Terry, real quick, I, I we got to take a break here, but I, I told you I was going to bring a name that they, that I, I wanted kind of to keep an eye on during the off season here. That they might be able to add mm -hmm. um, Chris Fedor, our colleague who covers the team. He, he's got some, some stories coming about, names to watch. But one guy that's really stuck out to me that might be worth the Cavs mid-level exception, which I think is 12.2 million is, is this Grant Williams from the Celtics. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I don't know if you've been watching him much, but I, even before I started kind of thinking of him as a Cavs fit, potentially, I've just been impressed with how tough he is. And I mean, you know, you watch that 76ers series, they had him singled up on Embiid at one point. Yeah. Well, yeah. Williams is six, six and he's leaning on Embiid and fighting and getting right up in his face. And uh, if you look at his numbers and you do this a lot here, you kind of are always looking for progression and how guys mm -hmm. are building on that. This is his fourth year in the league. Uh, he's gone from 15 minutes a game to 18 to 24 to 26, pretty much this season. His points per game have gone from, well, let me talk about his, his three-point shooting first. But he, he shoots pretty much 39 41% from the field. And that's gotten better every year, too. He's gone from 25% to 37 to 41 to 395 this past These are on threes, you mean? These are on threes, yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, his points per game have gone from three to four to 7.8 to 8.1. His rebounds per game have all gone up. He's gotten more time. And I just, you know, he's a 78% free throw shooter. He's he's a restricted free agent at the end of this season. I think he's projected for a, an eight million dollar, um, uh, 
you know, a qualifying offer yeah. at the end of the season. But if the Cavs offered him 12, like, I don't know. I, I just think he's a really intriguing guy, and he kind of brings a little bit of an edge. That yeah, I think he the does. The problem lose. with a restricted free agent, all you do is negotiate the contract for the Celtics. Or somebody else. <laughs> or somebody else. Generally, the Celtics. Right. Um, you know, because they'll, they'll match it, and you might be able to work a trade. Um, yeah, he's intriguing. Uh, Chris's guy's DiVincenzo. I know he likes him. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about the Cavs, too. Obviously, the small forward story is there. But, you know, the other thing is they don't have a guard who can make three-point shots coming off the bench. That's true. Because Levert is more of a driver and, and that. And, of course, he's a guard slash forward. See, that's what really hurt them. And and I know they realized there was risk with Rubio bringing him back, David, that when would he be ready to go off that second ACL? But they thought perhaps by playoff time. But Rubio's shot was totally broken last year. If they'd have had Rubio, I'm not saying they would have beat New York with the Rubio that first came here, you know, a couple of years ago. Well, that guy coming in at a game with the Knicks to settle things down, get the ball moving, all that, I think would have made a huge difference. Now, maybe he comes back to that player, but they need a guard who could shoot. Uh, because, right, basically you're starting your two guys and then there's nobody else that comes in in my mind anyway, that is even a above average outside shooter. No, that's true. And I've been talking about three point specialists. This is even make a medium to 18 foot. I know they all hate the 15, 18 foot jumpers, but uh, that you don't see those guys. And so they got to look for that guy too. And maybe that's someone you could find in the second round of the draft, which they do have a pick. And it, yeah, I mean, they actually, you know, they did that last year, but it turned out he was part of the drill. Baje. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he started towards the end of the year for Utah, and they got some minutes out of him. Yeah, so somebody like that that you could find, mm-hmm. you know, in, in second, here's your job. You stand there and you shoot threes when we when we get you open shots. So I don't know. Oh, you just um, kind of look around to try to find someone um, who's ascending upward. I mean, I, I know this. It seems like when Kobe does stuff, they keep the lid on it, and it's a surprise move whether it was Larry Nance Jr. for marketing or the Mitchell trade, you know, those, and those are, you know, big deals uh, around here and there were nothing leaked out about them. So probably the rumors, they're a little like the guardians in that regard. The rumors that you hear will probably be wrong and the move they make will probably surprise you. That is history. That's what we've seen. So I think you're right on that. All right, Terry, we're running a little late here. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I want to ask if you are worried about Emmanuel Classe or not um, and what the numbers say about that. So we'll get right into that when we return on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking. David Campbell and Terry Pluto. We're going to get into some baseball here. So, Terry, um, Emmanuel Classe has been so dominant since he's been with the Guardians. And I I wanted to get your thoughts on, there's kind of two schools of thought on him. Some people are concerned about his velocity and other people are saying, well, look at his numbers. Like he's still getting the job done. Um, Friday night against the Angels, I I think 14 of his 27 pitches were 99 miles an hour or above. And then on Sunday against the Angels, he came in in the ninth with a four four to one lead, gave up two runs. 
He threw 25 pitches, and only two of them were 99 miles an hour or above. He blew the save on Friday. He got the save on Sunday. Um, He's 14 for 18. He's leading the big leagues. Probably in saves and probably blowing blowing saves too, I bet. Yeah, and and the Guardians are under 500. And so I I just kind of wanted to see what you have been seeing and what you think about where he's at. Any concerns or not? I think that his control's not as good. I'm not talking about walks, but just pitch placement. Because whether you're throwing 98.5 or 101, I mean, that's getting it up there. It just is. And he seems to be not hitting that outside corner like he was. A little bit, too, of the other things I've noticed is uh, he needs to throw inside more. I don't mean mm-hmm. knock him down. Just kind of break some bats and do some of that stuff. Because, you know, he isn't a guy that, like, Karinczyk strikes out almost two in inning. Of course, he walks guys. That's not Classe. He's around, you know, 10, 10 strikeouts per nine innings. And um, so when he's getting hit, it just seems to me that uh, he's over the heart of the plate. In the past, he would give up uh, kind of weak ground balls, you know, that kind of stuff. It was, they were, he was just hard to hit. They always said he – I remember Frank Conis said early on, it's like he's throwing bowling balls up there. Uh, it's a heavy – they always call it a heavy ball. So that's – I'm not sure why that isn't happening for him, but I do think that's really – when you talk about um, uh, problems, that is it. To me, his control isn't as good, and I'm pulling up his stats now just to see if there's anything that, um, you know, pops, pops just jumps out at me. I mean, you look at, I mean, in 21 innings, he's only walked six. Oh, I'm sorry. He's only walked uh, five. So it's not that big, but how about this last year in 72 innings, he walked 10. So let's do the numbers there. So 10, in 72 innings, and this year, 5 in 21. And that doesn't count how many times he's behind in the count. Um, so that's... Uh, so he's on me, pace for almost twice as many. Twi- almost yes. twice as many. If you yes, times by exactly. Four, so he is, um, you know, and so he's given up basically, uh, they, they, they do hits per nine innings, walks per nine innings. And really even the walks per nine innings isn't, isn't, isn't that high, but... It's just to me that's one thing that I I, I hadn't looked at this until now, um, and I just noticed, geez, you know, he just seems to be behind in the count, and it's over the heart of the plate. Um, so we'll have to, you know, see how that plays out. But I'm, uh, um, and all right, I've got to give the velocity people this. He's only got 13 strikeouts in 21 innings. You know, this is a guy that basically averaged a strikeout an inning. So that's a sign, too. Now, I don't know if he needs to use a slider more or something else, but uh, I don't think he's hurt. Yeah, the fact that he can get still get it up to that velocity yeah. implies not. But, uh, you, you know, if to, you, I think you bring up a good point with the control, Terry. I mean, last year we would see him get, get a, save, a ninth inning save in 10 pitches or 13 yeah. pitches. I mean, even in the All-Star game, I think he threw like – 13 pitches mm-hmm. against some of the best in the game. And now we're seeing 25 pitch innings and in yeah. seven. Um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on this too, Terry. I, I the, the pitch clock has, has gone from being like, Oh my God, this is ruining my rhythm at the beginning of the season in spring training to now where it's kind of, people aren't talking about it as much, but 
the save conversion percentage in Major League Baseball has gone down from 67.8% at this point last season to 61.4%. Because, and a lot of people are attributing it to the pitch clock because you don't you don't you have 15 seconds to deliver a pitch right if the bases are empty and 20 seconds seconds if there's a runner mm-hmm. on you're in the ninth inning it's a high leverage situation you're trying to make sure you're throwing the right pitch you know making sure you're communicating with the catchers there's guys on base it's a high pressure situation and now you're adding the pitch clock which is even more pressure i don't know if that has anything to do with what we're seeing from emmanuel classe but it was pretty striking to me um the the save percentage has gone from the past decade it was at 70%, I think, in 2015, and now it's down to 61%. So I just thought that was interesting. I don't know if it's applicable here or not. but A couple of things on that. Number one is when it comes to relievers and what pitch to throw, most of them only have two pitches. True. So let's, let's keep that in mind. They don't have force. They don't, they're not picking from a lot. Um, but – a lot of these guys got in the bad habit of acting like they're these diva actors coming in the ninth and they're walking <laughs> around and waiting for almost like the applause and deep breaths and all this stuff. Um, and I am not in the analytics camp of all kind of innings are sort of the same. No matter what they say, there's something totally different about the ninth inning psychologically. Um Paul Shuey was a guy who had a great arm. It should have been a great closer. He could never handle the ninth inning. Um, but he was great in the seventh and eighth. Uh, Bob Wickman, uh, Joe Brokowski, you know, some of those guys that saved games or Doug Jones even go before that. They did not have great stuff, but they could handle the ninth inning. Um, and so this is the first time you go like, yeah, Quasay's having trouble handling the pressure of the ninth inning. And so that's that'll be something to watch too. Now periodically, closers just have a bad year, and then the next year they come back and sometimes it's a setup guy, and then they end up going back in a closer role, and they do well. You know, we mentioned Mariano Rivera. Well, there's a reason he's in the Hall of Fame, and a lot of these other guys aren't. But I do think some of these guys, and Quasse, while he wasn't as demonstrative, he'd stand out there for quite a while between pitches, throwing, figuring, I'm only going to throw eight or ten this inning. Uh, well, that has changed. And I'd say, figure it out. <laughs> I really do. Just There's figure a it thing. out. Yeah, fig- yeah, figure it out. Get all the all the mental mm-hmm. players. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Terry, we spent quite a bit of time talking about the catching situation last week, and we got a an email from Paul C. in Stowe, a longtime listener and fan of the show. He says, hey, Dave and Terry, why can't the Guardians find a defensive catcher who can hit? This year we have Mike Zanino, who's batting 187 and is struggling defensively, which we talked about last week. And he wants to know when you think they should bring up Bo Naylor and turn the job over to him. We kind of touched on this last week, but we're getting toward the end of May here. The weather's warming up. The ball is jumping a little bit more. What's the right timing in terms of if they do want to bring up Bo Naylor? When do you think is the right time? Soon. I, I, I'm, if they want to do it today, I'm fine with it. And Zanino becomes your – Zanino plays a couple days a week. Naylor plays a couple days a week. You, you start with that. By the way, I had to write a column over the weekend. I did not realize Zanino's defensive problems the last few years. Um, you know, he led the league in pass balls in 2000. And um, now last year he did not 22 because he was 
he was hurt. But in 21, he led the league in pass balls, and he led the league in 2019 in pass balls. 20 was that weird season with 60 games. Right. So um, he's been having problems for a while. And also, it's kind of slightly unfair when you look up how many wild pitches allowed, but um, they uh, they're they've gone way up. At, at this point, he was second in the league in wild pitches allowed. And I did look at his numbers as compared to Hedges. And now Hedges can't hit at all, but um, Hedges also doesn't let anything get past him either. Um, now, right now in the league in baseball, nobody can throw anybody out. I mean, you talk about stats plummeting. These guys, I think it's like 19% is the average catcher throwing people out, and it's dropping as we go on during the season. And in the minors, Bo and they were, last I saw, it was like 5 for 46 or something. And this is a guy that in his previous minor league career, he had averaged throwing out 31%. So I'm almost throwing these, I'm throwing out the throwing out stats unless you happen to be looking at the guy and you see there's something wrong with his arm. So I'm not worried about neighbors uh, throwing him out. And that's why I'm not dwelling on Zanino's not throwing anybody out, but nobody is. Right. Well, it seems when you get close to Memorial Day is the time when the Guardians tend to make mm-hmm. kind of the big, bold move when they see something that they think. And also they look down there. Naylor's been hot the last few weeks. Yep. They always want to bring a guy up when he's hot. So that's that's always been there. Their big thing. Now, Brian Rocchio got called up today. Jose Ramirez went on the bereavement list. So I don't know um, exactly who it was that he lost that was close to him. So Rocchio comes out and he is hitting um, 330. And so we'll, we'll, we'll see how he goes. And um, I just wanted to kind of check to see what uh, Oscar Gonzalez is doing. He is eight. Start out hot. I know that. Yeah, he's eight for thirty, a homer, a couple of doubles. So um, we'll sort of see what what happens with him. Um, I know that they want. Uh, he's stolen three base. Is that right? He's stolen three bases. Oscar on the run. So there you are. No, I'm, right. my eyes are getting bad. That was a guy, <laughs> a guy named Delgado in front of him. But he is he is hitting 267 with a homer at six RBIs. Uh, Rocchio's coming up. He's hitting 338. He's stolen 10 bases, hasn't been caught yet. 21 strikeouts, 15 walks, OPS 833. He is a very good shortstop. He's got 13 doubles, three triples, and then, then you asked about Naylor. Naylor is at 256. And he's got nine home runs, 32 RBIs. By the way, Columbus is a nice park to hit in for power. Um, and that's why people say, you know, talking about Zach Collins, who's hitting 331, eight homers. Zach Collins has, has been around. He's 28 years old. And um, there's, in my mind, maybe they'll call him up, but I see nothing there that intrigues me at all. But I'd rather see Zach, I'd rather see, um, excuse me, Naylor play, certainly, than a lot of Cam Gallagher. All right, well, we'll see if they make that move. we got one more question here, Terry, about the mm-hmm. Guardians. This one's from Ed Cohen, and Ed says, Hey, Terry, it's absurd how feeble the Guardians' offense is right now. I know it's likely to improve, but even Terry Francona has acknowledged that it's hard to win with just singles in speed. It puts too, puts too much pressure on the pitching staff. What do you think are the chances the team trades some of its wealth of starting pitching for an infusion of legitimate home run hitters? Well, if to find one, but they also have uh... – a bunch of middle infielders. 
that people like too. Mm-hmm. They have stuff to trade. So it's just a matter of uh, them finding it. And, and then it has to be a guy that's under team control for a couple of years or under a contract that they they want. They don't want just uh, you know a, a rental for the rest of the year or something like that. Yeah, there's but, a formula and a profile, and it has to fit that profile. I will say this. Them. In the past, though, um, Antone has been willing to trade prospects. He loves to trade for them. But I remember like when they made the Adam Miller deal, they traded uh, uh, Corey Snyder. Not Corey Snyder, excuse me. Um, oh, I'm having a terrible moment. It was Gary Sheffield and um, an outfielder that Clint Frazier, that was who it was, two of their top picks. And so they, um, they, they moved him. And I remember when they traded, this is when Chris first got the job, and they brought in um, Abaldo Jimenez. And they traded two of their former number one picks who were pitchers. Uh, uh, White was a pitcher and is a big left-hander whose name is, he went to Mississippi. His name escapes me at the moment. So he's been willing to trade for his first round picks uh, for that, for, for a guy. So that's a good point. He, he could do something like that if he could find somebody that they like. Um, the nice thing is I thought this weekend, it's not just because Naylor was hitting the ball uh the other guy started to hit. Finally, Jimenez started to hit. Jimenez is a very important, but they gave this guy $104 million. Um, you know, they think he's got a chance not to be Jose Ramirez now, but the Jose Ramirez who hit around 300 with 15 homers to 20 homers, you know, before Jose took that next step. They think that's who they have. Now, um, he's still playing a tremendous second base. I'll tell you this, I, I, I saw Paul has it. Paul Hoynes had Hoynes had him. He's gotten hit by pitches seven times already. Yeah, <laughs> this is bad. I'm serious. You're going to mess your career up. You know, the ball is hard. It hurts. It breaks bones. Well, and he so, got hit in the wrist the other day and was able get to get out, out of the so, way. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes uh, it's not worth it. So, <laughs> but it was nice to. See, you know, it's amazing. You come to the middle of May and it's like now Rosario shows up. He gets three hits a game. Yep. He does it. He did it with the Mets. He does it every year. And as Francona will tell you, you look up at the end of the year, and he'll be hitting 282 again with, you know, his numbers are so, you know, the old, the, the numbers on the back of the baseball card. And I'll ask you this, David, what do you think of Josh Bell? Oh, I mean, that's the thing about this question we just got is like, guys have a history of being power hitters, but then when you bring them in, like, what are you going to get? Right. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Josh Bell has been a disappointment. There's no other way to say it. Yeah. Right? Huge. I mean, we're now at a hundred on the, no more than that. Excuse me. We are now at 165 plate appearances. He's got three home runs. And this is probably something I'll look at for the weekend. You roll it back now to when he was traded to San Diego so remember, he had a big first half plus with Washington. This is where he hit 14 homers in 103 games and was batting 301. Now, though, in the last 102, excuse me, 92 games, he has how many how many home runs do you think he has in the last 92 games, David? Pick a number, pick a number, pick Six. a number between seven and five. Was I right? I said what six. Six is correct. Oh wow! All right. <laughs> and but think about this, 375 plate appearances. This is like that kind of Oscar Gonzalez stat where you won for 27. 375 plate appearances, six homers, 
Yeah. 32 one RBIs. One, batting one about two, yep. 10. Maybe this is what it's going to be. Maybe it's just. And if it is, yikes. Yeah. All right, Terry, we got to move along here. Yes. Real quick, though, I did want to mention Zach Plesak. We can kind of track how he's doing. He started off in Columbus 1-0 with a 1.64. No um, surprise. And two earned runs in 11 innings with 12 strikeouts and five walks. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on him as uh, as things go along. It might be he might figure in things in the long run. You never know. So. Yeah. All right, Terry, the Browns pulled off kind of a surprise. Mary Kay Cabot, our colleague, has been writing that she was expecting them to make some kind of a move to get another edge rusher. This was way bigger than I think a lot of fans were expecting. Oh, yeah. With Zadarius Smith coming in in a trade with the Vikings, the Browns um, basically in the swap got back from Minnesota sixth and seventh round, seventh round picks in 2025 in addition to Smith. And then they gave Minnesota a pair of fifth rounders in 24 and 25. Uh, pretty surprising move. It came on a Friday night. It was kind of like a Friday night news dump, as they call it in the business. Mm-hmm. It, it happened late, but w- were you kind of a little surprised that they were able to pull this quality of player in a, in a, yeah, it was like the Amari Cooper trade. I mean, just mm-hmm. like that. And then you go, well, there has to be something really wrong with this guy. So I'm doing all the research. Now there were, the last, I think, nine games, what do you have? Only a sack and a half, you know, after I think he had nine and a half or whatever it was in in the first half. He was playing with a bad, I believe it was a bad knee. Right. He bruised a knee on November 13th, I think, against the yeah. Bills. Right. Nonetheless, to just pick him up for, what, a fourth and a fifth? But it was sort of like with Cooper. You pick him up for whatever, that was a fifth and something else and swap a sixth. And you go, if he just sort of plays... His average year. You got a pro, pro Bowl guy, or at least close to it, and you can't lose. Now, this is where fans sometimes get mad when the Browns don't always go all the way up to the salary cap and that. And Andrew Barry does like to kind of keep, he'll tell you, 10 to $15 million in his pocket for opportunities like this. And, and it was a little bit of a salary cap uh, boon for the Vikings. Yes, same thing Which on Cooper. That's why they made the deal. Exactly. Cooper like was Cooper. in trouble. Yeah. They were in salary cap hell uh, with uh, um, uh, Dallas. And the same thing, the last time I looked, this was right before the trade, Minnesota was less than a million dollars uh, over the cap. And I think they had some other people they need to sign. I mean, they had problems. So they were looking to do something. Smith wanted out of there. He ended up trading agents or firing agents. He wasn't happy with the contract he signed. I think he misunderstood how much was guaranteed or something. So the Browns are very opportunistic. And, and, and I'm always surprised in the NFL why more teams just don't do this. I mean, apparently there weren't much of anybody else bidding on Amari Cooper last year or, or Smith this year. Now, maybe Smith comes in and blows a knee. Okay, so what? I mean, that's why I mean, you, you want him to be healthy, but it's like it's not like they turn around and trade Joe Batonio for him. I mean, yeah, two fifth rounders, like you said. Yeah, okay, yeah. fine. You know, remember fifth rounders, third to sixth rounders, only 15% of those picks ever become starters in the NFL for more than a couple of years. Yeah, I was surprised, that, number one, it didn't happen before the draft, and number two, that it happened like at this point of the year, like usually around June 1st is yeah. when a lot of this happens. So, yeah, it, it could be a, a win win for both sides, as Mary Kay has been suggesting that the, the 
you know, the Vikings get out of some salary cap trouble, and this is a good player, a veteran that the Browns can lean on. Right, and the nice thing, and Mary Kay has written it, and I wrote it the first night because I got it from a top official there, that the Browns really see him as an inside rusher quite a bit too. Um, I mean, this I'm curious to see what the, you know, the wide nine or whatever it is that he Schwartz plays that they're going to, uh, how they're going to allocate these um, roles. And I know there's a, there's a lot of internal stats that showed last year and even the year before the Browns were much better in press coverage than they were in that weird, it was called the four quarters zone that uh, Joe Woods was playing. And I'm going to, if you know what it is, I'm going to defer to you to explain it. Um, and, but he just kept playing the quarters coverage. Yeah. And the Browns, the Browns were better at man to man than most of the teams in the league. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, I think, yeah. I think you're right, Terry. We're going to see a lot more man to man press this year. So I know um, the Schwartz says too, if you're going to do that, you've got to help your guys. He means the back end. So you got to really press, um, not just press coverage, but pressure the quarterback. But that's, well, a, this is great. I mean, I'm, I'll tell you this, look at Andrew's off season. It's been terrific. It has. And this is a, reminding me a little bit, uh, Ohio state does this thing with Larry Johnson called the Rushman package, where they basically put four pass rushers on the field mm-hmm. on third and long. Like who cares if they're inside or outside, we're going to put our four best pass rushers and we're kind of getting that, that they could do that theoretically if they wanted to with, with Okoronkwo and, 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 and just miles on the left side and off you go with Zeri. And, and think about, okay, Zeri's if you're playing Smith. Joe Burrow, you're playing, well, Lamar's a little different because of his athleticism. I know they got Aaron Rodgers. They're on the schedule this year. They're playing a lot of these different guys. Fine. It's third and eight and you rush the house on them. And if they run a draw, okay. I mean, it, it might get the first down, but that's better than having that guy sit back there and pick you apart because you're in your quarters coverage where you're covering a lot of empty grass. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, Terry, before we move on from the Browns, I did want to talk real quickly about your Bernie Kosar column from over the weekend. And uh, you had a, a long, really revealing discussion with Bernie just about what he's been going through and, and the things he's dealing with. Why don't you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, Bernie um, reached out to me because this upcoming weekend on Saturday, uh, at the marathon, Woods Marathon weekend, Saturday, 7 a.m., they're having a walk for CTE. And it's obviously something very special to him. And what he really felt compelled at this point in his life, people have known he's had a lot of concussions and that. I've written some of the stories on that and some others. But he said, I'm willing to really tell you what it's like. And I've never talked about this stuff. And you know, we're, we would go three or four days without sleeping because of the headaches and, and the squeezing. Uh, driving on 480 and not knowing where he is. And he said, I could name five or six, seven players that have gone through the same thing. He goes, but they don't want to come out, and that's fine. I'm protecting their privacy. He goes, but when we get together, we tell these stories, and we're embarrassed at what has happened to me. I mean, here's Bernie, who made his living being smart, you know, in the analytical mind. And, you know, he, he walks into a store, why am I here? You know, that kind of thing. He was in a coma for uh, several days uh, and and happened in Chicago. He also was in another minor coma. Well, 15 months ago, he had a brain bleed. He's The good thing is he got up to 320 pounds several years ago. He's down to his playing weight at 210. He's on a real strict kind of vegetable supplement, you know, health food diet. That's helped. 
but still they don't have any cure for this at all and the side effects for several of these people are include um you know alzheimer's and parkinson's and lou gehrig's disease and from what bernie was telling me and i've heard this from some others uh the nfl has been very very reluctant to kind of settle with these players despite the settlement suit they're making it very difficult for them to get the uh kind of medical money and to prove that point they were hit with a lawsuit in 2021 where they settled where they had i guess what the the assumption was african-american players are not as smart as white players so therefore the cognitive ability for them was a considered a lower bar than for white players it's yeah, preposterous amazing. amazing and so and they and they had a own up to that and, and change that. And and this isn't a league that's what 65 or 70% African American. So Bernie obviously feels very strongly about this. He's like, wants everybody to come out, walk with him. He said, Bob Golick's supposed to be there. I think some others. Um, and if you haven't read that story, do check it out because it's very revealing. And the point is Bernie is not, this is not just about Bernie. And he admits that some of the mistakes financially and other things in his life are not because of CTE. They were bad decisions on his part. He's not talking about that. He's just saying, this is where we are at our age. Well, and Terry, the, the, uh, the NFL has been so slow to, well, first admit that concussions mm-hmm. were a problem and that CTE was a problem. And now the, it, it's a good, it's really good that the NFL players have people fighting for them to make change because it's going to, it's going to be a long process. And the sad part is a lot of these guys are, are getting up there and they need the money now. And the way the NFL is dragging their feet, it's, it's taken way longer than, and, they, and, they and Bernie mentioned, you know, junior say, and a couple of the other guys that have committed suicide and some others that he said, they did, and just they were kind of real, real marginal players. People don't know about them, and they're guys from college, not just NFL, but you know, people have had a lot of concussions, and and gen, generally, as you said too, people with brain trauma. Yeah, and these guys need the money now, so they really do. So I, I hope. They, and they, they hope yeah, the NFL doesn't, doesn't have it. Give me a break. Yeah, no kidding. They heck, they just got a hundred million dollars this week from Peacock to allow Peacock to to show one game on streaming and not on broadcast TV. So. Man, talk about money. It's All right, I'm going to be ignorant, and I know the Guardians. What What is Peacock? Oh, it's basically uh, NBC's streaming service, and the, the the history that was made, it's going to be the first time that an NFL playoff game is only available on a streaming service. Uh, yeah, it's a play by this Peacock to get people to sign up. So. Oh, boy, because in the past, what the NFL was always smart to do is their games are basically available to everyone. Right, right. And this is this is the one exception they've made. So we'll see what happens. But oh, good. Uh, They're going to be like the uh, bit, when we talked last week, MLB, uh, where you buy their package but you don't get your local flavor. You never know. Well, anyway, I just hope some of this money starts going to some of yeah. the players that need it here. So, all right, Terry, we have a hey, hey Terry question uh, again. If you want to send those to us, you can email us at sports at cleveland dot com. This one is from Andy Getz from Denver, who has written us before. He says, hey, Dave and Terry, recently I was traveling in Bologna, Italy, and I saw a guy wearing a Golden State Warriors championship T-shirt. I did a double take when I saw what year it was, 2016. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, no, 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 that's not right. The Cavs won it in 2016. This must be a T-shirt that was ready in anticipation of the Warriors winning. Now we see where these obsolete T-shirts wind up. (laughs) Yeah, he sent a picture to me of that guy, too. 
Yeah, it was something. Well, that really stinks. What, Golden State didn't win enough titles in that span? They got to like, yeah. try to steal the one they lost? Can't even give Cleveland the one that uh, that they earned. And, and I mean, then Cleveland wins it, and they turn around and recruit Kevin Durant to come back and beat the, beat the Cavs. <laughs> Uh, thanks for that letter you never know uh, what you're going to see when you're out there but i I thought that was kind of funny and and well you were in italy weren't you i was yeah a couple did you see any shirts like that no i didn't i didn't did you see any like lebron shirts or anything um i saw a lot of um yankees and dodgers hats incidentally enough people it's a fashion thing and a lot of people wearing that stuff but not so much nba Hmm. um so there you go but yeah keep an eye out for those crazy t-shirts out there if you see anything send them to us we'll be sure to include them so all right, Terry, so we're off next week, right? Yes. All I'm right. taking a few days off. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Um, I think we're done, right, Terry? Anything yes, else? we are. All right. We'll catch you in two weeks. Thanks, to everybody, for listening. We'll talk to you in a couple weeks on Terry's Talking.